Turn with me, if you will, in your copy of the Bible to Matthew 5. We begin today the Sermon on the Mount, focusing just on the first Beatitude, but we'll read all of the Beatitudes to set the context. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it today to our hearts by his Holy Spirit. If I asked you to tell me what is perhaps the most memorable sermon you've ever heard, what an interesting discussion that might be. Maybe it's a sermon that you heard recently. Maybe it's a sermon you read from someone who died long ago. Maybe it's a sermon that you heard and you were converted. There's a boy who listened to a Sinclair Ferguson tape, kids, a tape they used to put in a cassette deck or something, and they played it. Can you believe it? And you'd have to wind it up, and it would get all twisted, and you'd, anyway, forget it. A tape. And this boy listened to it 29 times for 29 days in a row. The 30th time he heard it, he was converted. When it comes to sermons, though, we really can't top this one. Not this one that I'm preaching. (laughs) This one in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that in its context perhaps lasted for hours, but is distilled for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It takes about 10 minutes to read it. In the months ahead, and I do mean months, we're going to be going through this sermon together as a church. In the weeks ahead, we'll begin where the sermon begins, which is in the Beatitudes, And Jesus here is pronouncing in the Beatitudes a gospel blessing. Loved ones, the Beatitudes are not law. This is God's blessing on his people in Christ. And this is a picture of what the citizens of God's kingdom, you, his people, look like. This is what life in the kingdom is about. And today we begin with that first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And as we go forward, this is a, such an important thing for us as a church as we live together and as we live in a culture that hates Christ, his gospel, and his church. First, 
we look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Todd Bordeaux is a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This is a conservative Presbyterian body that we're in close fellowship with. And he does a great job of sketching for us the outline of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to start by doing biblical theology. Otherwise, we jump in and we're tempted to moralism, which we don't want to do. Big red flag, no moralism here. Biblical theology, what does that mean? Well, from the Old to the New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, there's a flow of redemptive history from the Old to the New Covenant. And Matthew 1 to 5, we've seen in our study so far, is like a retelling of the Exodus, going back to it. Pharaoh himself persecuted Moses and the others in the days of Egypt. Jesus was persecuted by Herod and almost killed, just like Pharaoh killed those boys in the Old Testament. Moses was brought out of Egypt by God. So Christ went to Egypt and then came out of Egypt to escape the rage of Herod. When he's out of Egypt, Jesus is baptized. What does that remind us of? Do you remember? Israel, baptized in the Red Sea, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. And as Israel was baptized, so the waters of judgment came down upon Pharaoh and his army. Now Jesus was baptized, undergoing a baptism of repentance as John the Baptist baptized him. Not because Jesus sinned, but Jesus underwent that judgment for us in our place, suffering symbolically the punishment we deserve. It's all teaching us that Christ is the greater Moses, the greater Israel. After his baptism, Jesus goes where? To the wilderness, tempted for 40 days. Israel was tempted for 40 years and tested in the wilderness. And Moses, in the Old Covenant, as we read in the Law of God today, went up on a mountain to receive the law. He could not, the people could not get close to the mountain. There's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets. A terrifying symbol of judgment. If you touch the mountain, God said, you will die. Now Jesus, who comes to shed his blood, which is the new covenant in the forgiveness of our sins, goes up a mountain. And he tells the people, not stay away, but come near. Do you see how the people are gathered? And he is sitting, and they're gathered around him, a large group of crowd. And the difference is stark. The old covenant, curses and judgment. The new covenant, grace and mercy. Not that there's a different God. Not that God's standards have changed. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount Jesus will say, demands a righteousness that is perfect in heart and action. What has changed? Well, the good news is that Christ has come to fulfill the law in our place. He keeps the covenant of works. He speaks grace to you as he did to those gathered at the sermon that the law's demands have been fulfilled. Jesus has taken the curse of our sin on himself. And as we are united to Christ by faith, Bordeaux says, we come and listen. We're not told to go away. Here is our substitute, Christ. Here is our righteousness. And the whole Sermon on the Mount comes graciously to you, Christian. 
You come into God's presence, not by earning it, but trusting Jesus who came to save us. And that is seen in the very first word of the sermon. Blessed. Secondly, what does that word mean? The word blessed. According to the world around us, since the fall of Adam and Eve, the blessed life is the happy life. What is the happy life? The world says, it's all about my personal happiness. That's the motto of our society. So whatever makes me happy, I will do. The world says, you determine your own reality. And our society has a creed of self-reliance. Be yourself. Affirm yourself. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Self-sufficiency, self-confidence, self-importance, self-aggrandizement, self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction. It's everywhere. And it seeps into our hearts so easily. So if you do that, you'll be happy. That's the message we're given day after day in the world we live in. Teenagers looking for purpose and happiness. Those going through a midlife crisis looking for something they've lost. People thinking, maybe the American dream has it. Maybe happiness is if I get enough wealth, if I get enough stuff, if I have enough people like me, if I accumulate enough status that I have kind of arrived. The unbelieving world lives by eight anti-beatitudes. This is how one pastor puts it. And it helps us then when we see what the real beatitudes are about. Here's the anti-beatitudes. Blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of pleasure. Blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they will be confident. Blessed are the aggressive, for they will control the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for recognition, for they will be noticed. Blessed are the demanding, for they will receive what they demand. Blessed are the sexually liberated, for they will be free to live as they please. Blessed are the scheming, for they will be called children of the powerful. Blessed are those who are praised by the world, for theirs is the kingdom right now. And dear Christian, as we examine our hearts, we realize the indwelling sin of some of those things is here. That's what the blessings are not. What then does Jesus say they are? To begin with, it's gospel. When you read the Beatitudes, who should we think of first? Christ. Look at this through the lens of your Savior. The one who, the Bible says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, what? Nothing. Poverty in spirit. He took on our flesh. He is the man of sorrows, a man of mourning, not for his sin, but as he takes our sin on himself. He is meek and gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus is the son of righteousness, a merciful high priest. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Prince of Peace. He was persecuted for righteousness' sake, put to death in our place on a shameful cross. These beatitudes are about Jesus. We must never forget that. 
it is only after we see and believe that, and that's a, a thing we have to be reminded of every day, the gospel, then we think, how does this apply in my heart? So what does it mean, Christian, that you are truly blessed? The messages of the world scream at us. Does it mean you're happily married? Does it mean you have children who behave? Does it mean that your health is good? Does it mean that your job is stable? Yeah, all of those things are things we're thankful for and we pray for, of course. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He doesn't say blessed are those who are happily married. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are those who can travel and do whatever they want. He says blessed are those who mourn. It's counterintuitive to us, the Beatitudes. It flips everything upside down because the world is upside down. We live in a world where all the price tags are flipped, someone said. So the things the world values really are nothing in terms of eternal value. And the things the world says are worthless are of eternal, pearl of great price, God himself value. It's all flipped around. The word blessed has an opposite in the Bible. Do you know what that is? What's the opposite of blessed? Cursed. The Lord bless you and keep you, number six. So this is a covenantal term. It reminds us everyone lives in a covenant relationship with God, either under death and the covenant of works and curse, or by grace through faith in Jesus in the covenant of grace. The word blessed is a status. It's a status in relation to God. It describes what God thinks of you, not how we feel. It's not a commandment. It's not, if you humble yourself enough, you get heaven. It's come and trust the Savior. And those in the kingdom of God display this character in their hearts. What entitles you to God's blessings, dear Christian, is that you're united to Christ by faith. And in Jesus, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the blessing of the Beatitudes is you are favored and loved by God himself. There can be nothing greater than that. That's what our hearts long for. If you trust Jesus by faith, you are in a saving relationship and fellowship with the triune God. You have these blessings now in part, and yet we await the final future reality and consummation of them. It's an already not yet situation. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote probably the book on the Beatitudes. Maybe you have it. Thomas Watson and most recently Colin Smith. Those are resources. If you want to dig in more, the Watson book's actually free. Let me know and I can email it to you. Really good stuff. Each of them talk about the Beatitudes that build on each other. Smith said, look at a series of rings. Do some of you remember when we studied this, by the way, as a church? Colin Smith and the Beatitudes, some of you do. It'll be good to dig it out again. So think of them as a series of rings, one to another to another. The first three Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, deal with our need. It goes from there to the root of a blessed life, and 
then the shoot that comes out, the fourth beatitude, and then the fruit that comes from the shoot. So root, shoot, fruit. And we can't begin to talk about mercy and forgiveness and purity and peace until we first start where we are today, poor in spirit. But this is so important for us as a a church. Maybe you're struggling right now with forgiveness, with hurt, with bitterness, with sexual impurity, with temptation, with enslaving addictions, with being stuck or wondering, am I growing in the Christian life? The Beatitudes speak to those things. Third, we see how they begin. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this not mean? There's going to be a pattern here, what they don't mean, what they do mean, because poor in spirit, we kind of think maybe generally of something that maybe isn't what the Bible's teaching. This is not a personality trait. It's not being shy or introverted or analytical. It's not meaning you have to be melancholy or depressed. It's not false humility. It's not saying, I'm awful, I'm Eeyore, I'm brutal, I, oh, I'm just terrible. No, false humility is actually a form of pride because it still is thinking about me. This is not self-pity. It's not saying you're blessed if you're financially poor. Poverty, loved ones, is awful. Money can't buy me happiness, and poverty can't either. Remember, remember the Beatitudes are countercultural. Dale Van Dyke says this. Everything we think has to be flipped around. Being poor means what? You don't have resources. So we think, well, that, that's bad. But Jesus speaks of a poverty here that makes you rich. How does that work? Let's see in the Pharisee how it doesn't work. Who is the opposite of poor in spirit? There's a lot of people maybe that come to mind in the Bible, or we better not point the finger around, right? <laughs> Who's the opposite of this? The Pharisee of Luke 18 in that parable. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. I am not as bad as that guy. Wow, he is awful. God, I go to the temple. I go to church. I fast. I tithe, I I do above what your law says. What's the Pharisee doing? He's comparing, he's going down the route of self-justification, and he's all about externals, all about what it looks like, all about what people say, all about how I appear. The Pharisee doesn't have the slightest idea that any of his sins need to be forgiven because he doesn't think he's sinned. He's that blinded. I don't really have to confess any sins because I don't have any sins I can think of to confess. Proverbs 16. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. God opposes the proud Pride is the failure to realize that without Christ, I can do nothing. Pride is being self-reliant. I don't need any help. Pride is being self-satisfied. I'm good. Pride is being unteachable. I know it all. You can't teach me anything. That's pride. 
And some sins are hidden, loved ones, even from those who commit them. Pride and self-righteousness are the examples. Because awareness of sin is what the proud person lacks. If someone points out a sin to someone who's prideful, they say, you're misunderstanding me. Why are you picking on me? You're so critical. Dear Christian, the unrepentant, proud person is far from the Lord. Pride cannot exist in the presence of God. Poor in spirit. What is it? It actually begins not by thinking about ourselves at all, in a sense. It begins by considering the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul would have been 83 years old today. He's with the Lord in glory. His book, The Holiness of God, has helped me. It's probably helped many of us. Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah, well-respected. He himself had a message to bring to God's people. And in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord lifted up. The train of God's robe filled the temple. And he saw kids, what are called seraphim, fiery ones, angels, crying out before the throne of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God, the holiness of God, Words can't grasp this in our human language. God is incomparable. He is majestic. He is divine. He is beautiful. To speak of his holiness is to speak of his greatness, his value. The angels are singing not just once, but three times. Three. Holy Holy, holy. God's love is holy. His mercy is holy. His justice is holy. His goodness is holy. The whole earth, they say, shines with his glory. So imagine seraphim up in heaven looking down on the earth where we are and seeing the glory of God everywhere. And yet we don't see it. Why? Our idolatry our foolish preference to worship other people or things or whatever idol it is that we love more than God blinds us to the glory of God. Here's a story coupled with a parable. The story is from my life. The parable is from long ago. This really happened. March 1st, 2008. My wife, Colleen, and I were heading to Sun Valley, Idaho. Her dad let me borrow the truck. We went ice skating I tried to have some music playing in the background because I knew she liked this particular song. I didn't fall. I was worried I might fall. I had someone take a picture and, what's going on, kids? You probably even know. We got engaged on the ice skating rink in Sun Valley, Idaho. After we get engaged, we decide, let's go take a sleigh ride. And you take a sleigh ride. It's dark. And what do you have on the sleigh ride? March 1st. It's getting dark, not as early as now, but you've got lanterns. And you're heading out into the darkness, we're engaged, we're bundled up, and the lanterns are there. And here's the parable of this that ties in with the real story. We are like people on a sleigh ride with lanterns going out into the darkness of the Idaho night, and we're looking at the lantern and we're not seeing the glory of God above us, because the lights 
are blinding us from the stars until wind comes up and blows out the lights and then we see all around us the billions of stars that God made. And we bow and we say, oh God, you are great and majestic. Through what you've made in creation, we see his glory. In the Old Testament, in the temple, they would see his glory. We see his glory in the face of Jesus. We see his glory when we worship him as a people, word and sacraments. When Isaiah saw his glory, how did he respond? He collapsed in terror. He said, I'm undone. I'm bankrupt. I'm disintegrating. I'm laid bare. All my secrets are found out. God knows it all. I have nothing to boast of. He absolutely collapses. He's devastated. Because for the first time in Isaiah's life, he saw God. And when he saw God in that sense, he finally saw himself for who he really is. And so it is with us, Christian. Sin is not just a rule we break. It's a horrifying offense against a holy, holy, holy God. Excuses vanish. Rationalizations disappear. As long as our gaze is fixed around us, we typically think, I'm okay. In fact, I'm better than that guy. I'm not like that woman. We always can find a worse sinner than ourselves in our own opinion. But as we lift our gaze to heaven, as we contemplate God in his glory, we're broken. False pride, false security, self-righteousness is annihilated. We say, woe is me. I'm worthy of judgment. I have a dirty mouth. My lips are unclean. My heart is filled with idols. There's all sorts of things I think about and love more than God. The law of God is like an x-ray machine on my heart. I'm opened up. I'm dirty. God cannot look upon sin. I see his majesty. And now I see why I need a savior. But until we see the holiness of God, we won't see our sin. Until we see our sin, we won't see our need for a savior. The tax collector saw that, the opposite of the Pharisee. He didn't pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like Joe or Jim or Jane or Jill. He prayed what? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Whatever they say about me, it could be way worse. If people really knew me, they could say much worse. God knows me. Every secret of my heart is exposed before him. I'm guilty I have nothing about which to boast. And there's genuine conversion when that happens. There's genuine repentance. To be poor in spirit is a state of the heart. It is spiritual poverty before a holy God. It's not to lack courage. It's to acknowledge my sin. And, loved ones, it's a blessing Jesus gives. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit today. Blessed are you who know you can't keep God's law perfectly. Blessed are you who know you need a Savior. Blessed are you who know, as Dale Van Dyke says, you are utterly destitute 
and bankrupt before God. This means poor, abject poverty, miserable, wretchedness. Blessed are you when you know that there's not a single reason in yourself why God should love you or save you. Everyone stands before God like that. You know that, right? Whether we realize it or not. Because of our sinful condition, because of our actual sins, we are spiritually in poverty. So what Jesus is getting at here is not just that you are blessed if you're spiritually bankrupt, but you're blessed today if you realize that. Not just intellectually, but in your heart. We don't have the resources to become poor in spirit. We don't even have the power to humble ourselves to get to the place where we say, I am poor in spirit. We need even help to get their loved ones. The hardened heart is so blind, it doesn't see its real spiritual condition. Paul, before his conversion, said, I'm blameless when it comes to the law. There's not a more dangerous place to be than wrapped up in our self-righteousness. In Revelation, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea, you're blind. But they say, and this is Seneca, first century Roman, they say this, Seneca talked about someone who was born blind, but she wouldn't believe it. She said, the house is dark, I'm not blind. Christ tells the church at Laodicea, you're naked, here's my robe to cover you. But because they're blind, they don't see themselves naked. How many have perished by being their own savior, says Watson. How do we even know that we're blind? John 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit has to change our hearts before we even know we're blind. Otherwise, we're like kids, an ostrich with its head in the sand, staring at the sand, thinking that's the world. Blessed are the poor in spirit is an emptying and a filling. Demolition Day. Some of these shows show that, don't they? The, the, de, dem, the, the demolishing of an old house. So you demolish and rip out the carpet. Demo Day. And then renovation. What do you do? You put in a new floor. The old and ugly is removed. The new and beautiful is installed. The emptying of self the filling with Christ and the Spirit. And yet we think, Jesus, I've got something to bring. I'm coming, I've got a letter of recommendation. Look at my past. Look at my family. Look at all I've done for you, Jesus. Here, take it. This should count. This should help me. Faith is an empty hand that receives the blood and righteousness of Jesus. We bring nothing but our sin. We come weak. The person who is reduced to nothing in themselves and relies entirely on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. We are righteous before God by faith in Christ whose righteousness is imputed to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You can't enter the kingdom by your works. And we can't 
stay saved by our works. We are not passive in sanctification. So we have to look at the Beatitudes and say, does this describe me at all? We realize that God says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you. So this study of the Beatitudes impacts our hearts, our will, our mind, our affections. This is not behavior modification, right? If we are not pursuing this character in ourselves, it's because we have not beheld it in Christ. That's where we have to go. When we see it in Christ, we turn to him. You, O Christ, are my righteousness, and now help me to shut my mouth. That's one thing. The poor in spirit have a closed mouth. They have no illusions about themselves. They stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people. Stop rationalizing our behavior. And stop making false claims about ourselves and building ourselves up around people. The poor in spirit have seen the darkness of our own hearts. We see what we're capable of apart from the grace of God. We say with Paul, nothing good dwells in me. If there's any goodness in me, it's by the Holy Spirit. One pastor said, 60 years after I became a Christian, I was more aware of my sin than the day I was converted. This is not just discipleship 101. This is not just talking about what we realize when we first come to Christ. This is talking about the whole Christian life. Paul, Romans 7. As we become more like Christ, we become more aware of sins of our heart that we didn't even think were sins before, that we were so smug and proud in. Paul said that. I'm the chief of sinners, Paul said. This beatitude, Van Dyke says, is not just a caution against pride. It's a caution of the American version of Christianity that kind of looks at God as okay, I I guess I need some help every now and then. I'm not really that bad. I just need a boost. We feel comfortable living before God, recognizing, yeah, I guess I need some help. But we just by nature don't take our sin or God that seriously until God does a work of grace in us to help us realize our desperate need, our spiritual bankruptcy. Here's how this is played out. The truth of our blind self-righteousness is revealed in the way we treat other people. That's how we see this. And how we are so impatient with them. So easily irritated. How often we hate our enemies rather than loving and praying for them. And how we easily justify our own sins. People who are poor in spirit are not offended by the splinter over there because they see the log right here. The poor in spirit are humble daily. This is the one to whom I will look, the Lord says. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles 
at my word. The poor in spirit realize Isaiah 57. Thus says the Lord, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is what? Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's where God dwells, but where else does he dwell? And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. God dwells in heaven, and he dwells with the poor in spirit. Being humble and poor in spirit will help you bear afflictions and keep trusting God. Being poor in spirit will nourish your love for someone because pride dumps a bucket of water on the flames of love in relationships. It just douses it. Being poor in spirit by the grace of God will fan that love into flame. It will mean we look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. It'll mean the person who's poor in spirit is the last person who should be guilty of snobbery or cliquishness. You have a group of two or three friends? Someone else comes along? Yeah, join us. Let's hang out together. Let's love the stranger. Let's love the one who has no friends. Let's not kind of get into little groups that compete. Poor in spirit means the death of jealousy, the death of kind of the cliquish self-centeredness of teenagers, right? But we realize we're prone to that too. This means prayer for the death of pride. You and I will not be easily humbled. Have you ever prayed, God, kill pride in me? Much prayer, much confession of sin, and much confidence in a caring God. The person poor in spirit is weaned from themselves. It's not that we think less of ourselves. It's not that we think more of ourselves. We think of ourselves less. Why? Because our interests aren't on me as much anymore. Our interests are on Christ. Our heart is set on Jesus. The gospel grips me. The cross is the proof of my sin and God's holiness and wrath against my sin and God's forgiveness of my sin through the blood of Jesus. And that fills my heart. That fills my thoughts when I'm poor in spirit. The poor in spirit says, give me Jesus or I die. The poor in spirit sees all our riches are in Christ. Righteousness, wisdom, and sanctification. The poor in spirit are thankful. What's the chief part of thankfulness? Prayer. The poor in spirit are men and women of prayer. Prayer is realizing God will give his grace and spirit only to those who, without ceasing, ask him of them and give thanks to him for them. The poor in spirit see Christ as precious because the poor in spirit come to worship and as we worship, we are changed. Like Asaph. Asaph said, I was envious of the wicked. They're partying. They're not going to church. Pride is their necklace. They're prosperous. They're healthy. I almost slipped. I almost fell into that until what happened, Asaph, in Psalm 73. What happened? He went to the sanctuary of God. He saw the curse 
that God has on the wicked. He saw that God was putting their feet in slippery places. And then he said, I'm not looking at the world the same anymore. Now I see things completely different. I see it from God's perspective. I realize it's not about being rich and famous and good-looking and healthy and wealthy and wise. It's about Christ. Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs alone. Those who are not poor in spirit can never have membership in the kingdom of heaven. This is not a political kingdom. It's a kingdom Jesus inaugurated as the king through his healings, his miracles, his preaching. It is finally and fully the consummation, the new heaven and new earth. It means you will be given everything in Christ as long as you know right now that you and yourself possess nothing. That apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. You are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Everything your heart was made for, Van Dyke says. The kingdom of heaven is God as your father. Christ is your brother. It's being with God in eternity in the new heaven and new earth. It's a kingdom that you receive knowing that every promise of grace and blessedness in this life and the next is sealed for you now in Christ. It's the promise that you come naked, foul, and bankrupt right now to God, to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, washed in his blood, that you're not downcast, that you're not despairing, that you have a joy and contentment that is rooted in Jesus. You're freed from your burden of debt, of sin before a holy God. You're freed from the hopeless struggle of trying to earn God's favor. Loved ones, when you confess the truth of your spiritual poverty, you discover the wealth of love and grace in Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, dear Christian, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see and behold the beauty of the blessings of these Beatitudes. We desire, O oh Lord, that you would build us up in the gospel, that we would not be discouraged today, but that we would be thankful that we are a blessed people by faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.